Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Yaron Eliav about his new release, A Jew in the Roman Bathhouse, Cultural Interaction in the Ancient Mediterranean, out of of Princeton University Press. Out of Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Yaron. Thank you very much, Nathan, for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And can you give your New Books Network audience a primer on your academic and personal background? Sure. Uh, Well, I'm uh, a professor at the University of Michigan. I've been in Michigan for over 20 years. Originally, I am from Israel. I did a lot of my training as an university uh, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, my undergraduate work, some of my graduate work I did in the United States, uh, then uh, came to Michigan in the early 2000s via a few years in New York. And I've been here. I'm a professor of uh, Jewish history and the Roman Mediterranean. And I teach and I research uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. What inspired you to explore the topic of cultural interaction in the ancient Mediterranean, specifically your focus on Jews in the Roman bathhouse? Well, uh, r- cultural interaction is um, is a sort of a big word, uh, which uh, kind of hides in many ways the dynamics that create life. You know, our culture defines who we are. It's a set of, of views and ideas and concepts and practices. Now, Jews and Romans, they're it's like two systems of life, which when they met, when they engaged, it sparked a certain, certain dynamics, certain developments that happened. It's a long, a very long history, but out of that meeting 
of Judaism and through Judaism, also Christianity later on is sort of a manifestation. It's a development within Judaism. Judaism and Christianity on one side met the Roman world. Out of that meeting came our life. You know, what was born eventually from that meeting in the in the broadest sense of the world, of the word, is is Western civilization. You know, the civilization that we are living in today in the United States, in Europe, in in is 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 molded. It sits on these foundations of of Roman, Greco-Roman, the democracies, the philosophies of the Greeks and the Romans and their laws. And then Judaism, the morality of the Bible and the ideas and the concepts that went from Judaism to Christianity. Out of that came our world. So I was fascinated by that. And I'm a historian of small things. You know, today it's very fashionable to talk about big history. I'm a small history guy. So I tried to take this meeting of of these two great systems of life, Greco-Roman on one side, Judeo-Christian, you can call on the other side, and to find something very small where it all is encapsulated, the meeting. And that's how I found the bathhouse. A bathhouse is one of the places where this this engagement, which I call interaction between these two systems happened. So through the bathhouse, I can follow, I can unpack, I can understand the nature of that meeting. And it will give me insight of what happened when Jews and Romans, when Greco-Roman met Judaism, how, how did that work? Many people were interested in that, but they looked at the philosophies and on the big questions. I looked at it through the small space of the bathhouse. Can you provide an overview of the key cultural elements and practices you discuss in your book regarding Jewish Roman bathhouses? Sure. Um well, the, the key thing to understand, and that's one of my early arguments in this book, is that I show uh, in, a, in a relatively surprising way that the bathhouse, and when you think about the bathhouse, you hear the word bathhouse, you think it's a place to bathe, it's a place to wash the body, it's a place to be clean. That's what we think, you know, we take a shower, it's a bathhouse. No, a bathhouse was much more than that. A bathhouse was an institution. It en- it encompassed, it brought together many aspects of Roman life that are integral, that are essential to what the Romans themselves, people who lived in the Roman world, viewed as the Roman way of life. They had a name for it. They called it in Latin Romanitas. The Romanitas manifests itself in the bathhouse in various ways. It starts from the engineering of the bathhouse. Roman Roman culture, Roman way of life was in many ways uh, a very practical way of life. And the Romans proud themselves on, on their capabilities in engineering and in technology. Of course, we're talking about ancient times. Uh, and, and the bathhouse is sort of a miracle, an engineering miracle, because uh, they were able to bring water large quantities of water today we take that for granted we we open the faucets there's water but it wasn't like that in the ancient world for years there was scarcity of water there were rivers and whatnot but the water was not available to people in the bathhouse there was tremendous amount of water and there's a technology and an engineering feat to be able to heat 
and maintain the warm water over long periods of time. So that's one aspect. But then you take there's a whole gamut of, of other things. There is uh, aesthetics, for example, the bathhouse was decorated. There's religion. There was uh, uh, statues in bathhouses. There were various religious practices. The human body. How do you appreciate the human body? What do you think of the human body comes to play in the bathhouse? In the bathhouse, people shed their clothes. Many of them bathe completely nude, you know, something that would uh, seem to us a relatively inappropriate, you know, they're, they're nudist beaches, but they're on the periphery of society. In the bathhouse, people, people expose their body, they love their body, their sports in the bathhouse is a physical activity. Uh, then there's social hierarchy in the bathhouse, because everyone came to the bathhouse. So there is society and religion and aesthetics and sports and the body and engineering. You see, it's a cluster of aspects that are very important in the definition of how people in the ancient world and how we understand them today define themselves as Romans. The bathhouse was sort of an island, quote unquote, of course, an island of Roman life. And into that came the Jews, or did they? See, a lot of people felt that the Jews felt uncomfortable in the bathhouse because of that, because they were Jews. It's a different system of life, sometimes viewed as antagonist, as conflicting with the Roman way of life. I said, let's check that, because there's so many bathhouses that were found. There's so many sources about the bathhouse. It's The bathhouse, for me, is like a laboratory to check this Roman culture, which was embedded in the bathhouse, and how Jews who visited, frequented the bathhouse on a regular basis, how they interacted together. So that's that's why I was I was leaning. That's why I chose this topic. Great. And how did you approach the research process for your book? And what sources did you find most valuable in understanding the cultural dynamics of the time? Well, uh, the research is what we would call in academia, you know, uh, university researchers would call this interdisciplinary, which is, again, one of those big words that I don't like using so much. What stands behind it is that in order to study the bathhouse, as someone standing today in the 21st century looking 2,000 years back, you need different tools to work with bathhouses. Because first, and that's what appealed to me, that you need to it's not enough to be an expert or to be able to research one group of sources. You have to be comfortable with multiple multiple realms of, of the ancient world. For example, a bathhouse is a physical place. It's it has walls, it has dimensions, it has you can touch it even today. So the discipline of archaeology is very important here. And I'm an archaeologist by training. I have two degrees in archaeology. So I feel comfortable navigating archaeological excavations around the Mediterranean. I visited hundreds of bathhouses in order to get an understanding of how they work and to imagine them. I want people who read my book to be able to, the book I'm striving for the book to recreate the environment. You you read the pages of the book and you feel that you're in the bathhouses, you're walking. So what did people feel? What did they see? What did they touch? Who was there? And so what? You need archaeology for that. And then the experiences in the bathhouses were documented 
for the Romans in many sources. So you also need to feel comfortable in reading Greek and Latin. Those are the two major languages that were spoken in the Roman Mediterranean. And to read whatever survived of people who went to the bathhouses and who wrote about it. And there's tons of stuff there. People loved the bathhouses and they wrote jokes about the bathhouses, stories about the bathhouse. But sometimes even philosophers in, in, in doctors wrote treatises about issues that they were thinking about the bathhouse. So that's the Roman side. You need archaeology, you need Greco-Roman sources. But then to understand the Jewish side, you really have to be comfortable with the major group of sources that has survived from the Jews in Roman times. And this is a, a, a very large corpus of written material that we today tend to call rabbinic literature. And, and, you know, some people hear that and they kind of uh, they kind of step back because we know rabbis today. But rabbinic literature is a fascinating corpus that these figures that we today call rabbis, they didn't even call themselves rabbis, but they wrote and because they were held in very high esteem in future generations, that has preserved and it's there. And it's very interesting. People think it's a religious these are religious texts, but they have a lot of stuff there. There's stories, there's poetry, there's uh, there's dialogues, there's all sorts of things going on in rabbinic literature. You have to be comfortable reading and 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 working with that because it's a different set of. A lot of rabbinic literature is written in Aramaic. Sometimes you need to know also Hebrew. It's it's a different group of texts, but the bathhouse feet is featured in rabbinic literature hundreds of times, which was a surprise to me when I started working on this. You know, it's in rabbinic literature, the bathhouse is mentioned more than any other Roman institution. They lived in the Roman world, so they regularly refer to what they've been seeing. So, you know, so Roman institutions like the theater or the hippodrome where there were horse races, uh, Roman temples, Roman courts, there's all sorts of institutions. More than any other institutions, the rabbis those who wrote rabbinic literature talk about the bathhouse. So I combine these three fields of study, archaeology, what we call classical studies, Greco-Roman literature in Greek and Latin, and Jewish literature, rabbinic literature in, in Aramaic and Hebrew. And from the three of them together, I recreate the world of the Jews in the bathhouse. So first, it's a fascinating uh, story if you're interested in the ancient world, because I'm inviting you to come and visit the bathhouse with another Jew in 2000 years ago. But through the story, you also learn what we called before the cultural dynamics, what happened when these Jews came to that place. And the story is, is, is very surprising in its conclusions. And in what ways do you think the Roman bathhouses served as a significant space for cultural exchange or an interaction among different communities? Well, I think that the bathhouse was the place where cultural interaction happened uh, in the ancient world. And I'll tell you why, because it is the number one place that everyone went to. And you think about it, the Roman, the ancient world was much more segregated than our world today, not because they, they wanted it to be like that. It wasn't, it wasn't mandated by anyone to happen, but it was just, you know, people didn't travel a lot. People were very busy. They worked very hard. I'm not talking about the millionaires, the senators or the emperors or whatnot. I'm talking about the people on, on, on the street. And then 
people didn't move around a lot and you worked from very early on in the morning until until you went to sleep you took some some pauses so a lot of people didn't go to a lot of places uh, i'll give you an example say to worship at a temple so if you were an adherent of a certain god or a goddess in the Roman world, you'd go to that temple on, to celebrate or whatnot. Sometimes other people would see the temple from the street, but it's not like everyone met there. Even places like the market, you know, you'd think everyone would go to the market to buy stuff. It's really not true. Many people, if you had a slave, you'd send the slave to the market. It was a filthy place. It was a place very, uh, you know, so not everyone went to the market. Now, if you were a child or if you were just a married woman, you of course, you never went to, rarely went to, to the market. And even if you went to the market, you went specifically to buy what you wanted and you would leave. What is my point? My point is that the bathhouse is the only place that everyone went and attended on a regular basis. You know, there were other places of entertainment, for example, theaters, or as I mentioned before, like people in the Roman world loved to go to hippodromes. They, they loved horse races. But again, those Places didn't exist everywhere. Not every town had a theater. Of course, only big cities had. And also the theater didn't function on a regular basis. If there was some show there or, or whatever you, you and, and you wanted to go, not everyone went. On the other hand, our sources tell us that everyone went to the bathhouse. We're talking about slaves, kids, women, married women, unmarried women, men of all, all strata of society, the wealthiest people, multimillionaires that you wouldn't think today, say you go to the beach, you wouldn't find a celebrities going, they go to private beaches, they go to their swimming pools and whatnot. But the public bathhouse, everyone wanted to go. We have even some information that sometimes even the emperors themselves, that wasn't a frequent, but others below the emperor, senators and magistrates and, and wealthy people all went to the bathhouse. So it was a place that drew everyone together. And that's why it's a place so so easy to study through it the interactions between people now since you had romans there and greeks and and whatever people in 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 in, in the empire wherever you are syrians arabs phoenicians egyptians uh celts germans whoever it is jews so the uniqueness of the jews is that we know a whole lot about them because of this literature that survived from them the bathhouse is an ideal place to study these interactions between people. It's, I would say, the best place to, if you want to look specifically at, at one place and really unpack the small details of culture, the best place to do that is a bathhouse. And I know that you said that you were a smaller historian or you looked at smaller places, for example, Today, you might find Yiddish spoken in New York or a place like L.A. Where did we find these bathhouses um, in the Roman Empire? So, for example, like what cities were popular? Sure. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, bathhouses were very popular. And when you want to understand their popularity... I always tell my students, you know, take an experiment and go two weeks with showering only in cold water. 
just do it. No one would do it, or very rarely you'd find these people. Why? Because we take it for granted, the amenities that are provided by us being able to go to the shower, to the faucet in the morning, open it, and get hot water to put on our faces. We don't pay attention to it. But in the ancient world, it was extremely unique. Before the Romans, you didn't have that. The Romans developed a system to bring large quantities of water everywhere. It was a relatively simple system with aqueducts. And once they started doing that, uh, channeling water into cities and towns, even villages, and they had they had surplus of water. They had too much water. You know, an aqueduct, you can't stop the water. It's not like faucet. That's how they started developing bathhouses because they started thinking, hey, what can we do with all this water? The Romans were very practical. Well, we have a lot of water. Well, why don't we let people use it? But if people use it, they're very cold, the water. They're not appealing. Well, let's warm them. That's how the Romans think. And that's how they developed this system of heating large quantities of water. But once they did that, it became extremely popular. Everyone wanted it. So you're asking me what cities had bathhouses. And my answer to you, there isn't a city that didn't have bathhouses and not even one bathhouses. Sometimes a certain city could have tens and even more. I'm not talking about the largest, the largest city in the Roman world was Rome itself. You know, Rome had a million people living in it at the height of the empire, which today is not considered that big. But you think about the ancient world, that was a city that no one has ever seen before. In Rome, there were hundreds of bathhouses, and I'm not exaggerating here. We have the sources. Hundreds of bathhouses operating simultaneously in Rome at one time, 300, 400, 500 bathhouses, some of the sources say, in certain periods of time that were that were operating because everyone wanted to go. You know, it's all based on demand. Everyone wanted to, to have this very simple joy of life, being able to immerse your body in hot water on a regular basis. We think it's so, it's so banal. It's so, it's so, it's so basic, but that was their life. They didn't have something for them. It was the greatest joy that could come. You know, there's a Roman saying that says, uh, women wine and bathing is what makes life. Now, the first two, we can understand why, and everyone kind of likes it, makes you happy and whatnot. Women, you know, from the male point of view, of course. But bathing, why did they put that in one of the three elements that makes life? Because for them, it was there was nothing more joyful. So you go through the Roman Mediterranean, and I follow track around the Mediterranean. There are tens of thousands of bathhouses. Even today, thousands were found by archaeologists. And when you look at them, the spread of them in every city, in every town, even in every village, you know, a small village, 400 people living in this village out of nowhere, they gather some money and whatnot, and they build a bathhouse. And the, the second reason there, it's well, once you have the system of how to build that bathhouse, it's relatively simple to build. Relatively simple. So if it's relatively simple and it provides so much joy, everyone wanted it. And so you have thousands of them throughout the Roman Mediterranean in the smallest of places, every city. You name a city in the Roman Empire, I'll tell you how many bathhouses were there. Alexandria, hundreds of bathhouses. Antioch, those are the big cities, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. But even in smaller cities throughout, throughout say, what is today Turkey, which was called Asia Minor, or what is today Greece, say, Athens in Roman times, or uh, cities like uh, cities like Ephesus and, and others in, in, in there. And then you go to places highly, highly uh, inhibited by by Jews, 
say, in the territories that were part of the Roman Empire, which is, say, today, modern Israel or Palestine, there were, you find bathhouses everywhere, in big cities, small cities, towns, villages. That's, that's the uniqueness. That's why it's so easy to study, relatively easy, because the assumption has to be that everyone was there. And I find them in cities in, say, what in Roman times was called Judea, the place where, where what is today modern Israel, in, in cities like Tiberias or Jerusalem or Caesarea, which was a big city there. But even in other cities like Gaza, now in, in, in the news and whatnot at the time, you know, were a very important Roman port city. You find Acre, which is Akko today, another uh, city in North Israel. You find bathhouses everywhere. And, and when you find them, you have to say, well, the residents, the, the people in those cities, they wouldn't build the bathhouses and not go to them. It's, it's an investment. People went to those bathhouses Jews included. So to answer your question, where do I find them? Everywhere. Were there any surprising discoveries or findings during your research that reshaped your understanding of cultural dynamics in the ancient Mediterranean? Absolutely. You know, research, that's what's nice about it, is it's full of surprises. There isn't a day without a surprise. It's it's like you go on a journey and you don't know what you're going to find. You let the evidence tell you the story. So I found it, it completely reshaped my understanding of cultural interaction in the Roman Mediterranean. And I'll give you the, the, the gist of it. Prior to this research, uh, when I was taught as a student about cultural interaction, it was very much a model of of two opposites. You know, you talk about Judaism, you, you read about it in books and in encyclopedias, uh, even on the internet, and you see uh, uh, Jews and Romans are portrayed as two entities that they they stand on two sides of of the ring, if you want, or, or, or of, of the world, if you want. And yeah, they negotiate. Sometimes they're very hostile to each other. But even at times at peace, they're two separate, uh, two separate systems that kind of stand one against the other. And in bathhouses, the first thing that you you realize is that whatever your perception or whatever your view on Judaism and the Romans were in the bathhouses, they were rubbing shoulders and they were together in the bathhouses because they weren't separate bathhouses for Jews or there was a public bathhouse. Everyone came to it. Many of these cities were most of them, 99% of them were mixed cities. People went to bathhouses. So in the bathhouse at a given afternoon, you find everyone you find, you find Syrians and Greeks and, and Roman soldiers and merchants who are visiting the city from from uh, from Turkey from Asia Minor and you find and you find Jews and you find rabbis and you find men and women and slaves everyone is together so that's the first thing that that it tremendously surprised me at first but really had to I had to question the cultural model that I I had in in understanding the ancient world and to understand Christianity, Judaism, Christianity later, and say in Greco-Roman culture, because if they're in the bathhouse, at least, which is, a, as I said before, is a manifestation of Roman culture, they were all 
embedded one into the life of the other to the point that it was very hard to distinguish who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. So from it's sort of like almost like a salad, you know, all the vegetables are mixed together and, and, and they're one inside the life of the other. So it's interesting in that situation to ask, so what's unique about you being Jewish when you come into the bathhouse. Are you still Jewish or do you stop being Jewish and you become Roman and you retain your Judaism when you go outside? What is happening there? And in the book, I tell the story of the bathhouse, but I also develop a different cultural model to understand the interaction between Judaism slash Christianity and, and Roman times. And in many ways, I think that this model also can help us understand other societies and other cultures. It's a model that explains the interaction of of a strong dominant culture with uh, a smaller and less strong culture. You may say minorities and majorities. And you go all over the world, even today, a lot of this happens. You know, today, say, America is one of the dominant cultures in, in Western civilization. Everyone hears the music and sees the movies and wears the clothes and eats the food, you know, all sorts. But how do other minorities negotiate Americanism or American culture? The model that I built could help, could, could apply to other other cultural dynamics as well. Uh, and I call this model, I call it filtered absorption. And I explain it in the book and and whatnot. So this was it, this is entirely new. I had to recreate my understanding about cultural interaction because of the evidence, because the bathhouse forces you to rethink some of the central elements that you you thought about who Jews are and how they view. Uh, these other stronger, more dominant cultures of the Greeks and the Romans. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And did you mention at all, or did you research and write about the socio-political context of this Roman Empire, and how did it influence the cultural experiences of Jews in the bathhouse? Uh, I did. Uh, you know, the bathhouse was uh, not so much a political place in the political sense of the word. And what I mean by that, uh, it was a place that people came to have fun. They also, uh, they 
they took off some of the items that they carried with them throughout the day that signaled to everyone who they were. Okay, so let's take a Roman senator, okay, or say in the city of Rome, but even somewhere else, say a member, a prestigious member of a city council who also attained citizenship of, of the Roman Empire. These people on the outside, outside of the bathhouse would be immediately recognized. You know, they had certain symbols and tokens of even things that they wore. You know, Roman senators wore a white toga with a purple line on it. You know, they wanted to signal to everyone who they are by what they wore and how they walked and how they carried themselves and whatnot. All that was taken off in the bathhouse. You know, when you enter a bathhouse, the first room that you meet is called an apoditorium. It's it's a changing room. You take your clothes off and with your clothes, you leave behind all the symbols of who you are. Similarly, Jews, you know, so in the, in the bathhouse, most people are just naked or very minimally clothed at times, but at the end, just exposed. So they, uh, they don't have that political affiliation of who they are and what they are. They develop Another language, it's I call it the language of, of bathing, is is relatively different. Now there were symbols of power in the bathhouse, you know, imperial. Many of the bathhouses were called after emperors, and there were statues of Roman emperors. And imperialism, that mechanism that expressed Roman power, would pervaded bathhouses as well. And sometimes we find people who have uh, strong feelings against the Roman Empire even uh, uh, demolishing and, and burning or, say, hurting symbols of Roman power in the bathhouse, like statues, for example. We, didn't, we don't find Jews doing that uh, at all, but we find others doing it. So what I'm trying to say is that the, the, uh, the interaction, the things that people talked about in bathhouses we're not so much on the political level, at least the evidence doesn't doesn't reflect that. So we don't have discussions. We have some because in the minds of people, bathhouses did register as, as the symbols, as the manifestations of Roman power. So if you enjoy the bathhouses, you enjoy the amenities provided by the Romans. And that is a, some a, some symbolic a political language that is there, and you find discussions about that among the Jews. And like many things, the Jews they they like to disagree, especially when it comes to rabbis. These are intellectual Jews, scholars of sorts, and they always love disagreeing. So when one particular source talks about a few rabbis that are discussing bathhouses, and one of them says, you know, what what beautiful architectural creations this empire provide us see the joy uh, that we're having in the bathhouse and another another one snubs him and said what are you talking about uh bathhouses are are full of filth or, or full of prostitutes or, or whatever and he's kind of denigrating the roman empire by by putting down what the other saw as one of the benefits provided by the roman so you have that sense but it doesn't go beyond that into the real politics. The politics were create were was discussed in in city councils on the on the street. You know when when Jews took arms against the Romans. The bathhouse was a place to enjoy yourself, and when you enjoy yourself, you're enjoying uh, the language is language associated with that. 
do are we comfortable enjoying our body or we're not? Uh, how do we feel about nudity? How do we feel about Roman statues? Uh, how do we feel about the Roman hierarchy? How do we feel about the social hierarchy? I'm sorry of of people now that it's vanished because in the bathhouse it's sort of like erased is that is that a better egalitarian world or the world outside which is very hierarchical and very well demarcated is that those are the kind of discussions that you have among people going to the bathhouse and of course also the rowdy uh rowdy experiences of of places that are suffused with nudity and sexuality. And so you have that as well. So if you're a very, I'd say an appropriate person and you're, you're uncomfortable with, with inappropriate aspects of life, I put that in quotations, then the bathhouse is not the place for you. But if you're, if you're attracted to, to seeing life in its fullest with all its colors and with all its, uh, inappropriateness that's that's when you come to the bathhouse what about other figures of roman authority was there conflict or collaboration within these communities uh you know i would say both i would say both uh you know the the hierarchy in the roman world was as such that Many of the citizens of the Roman world were not uh, engaging with figures of power on a daily basis. You know, Rome was uh, was uh, governed through a system of provinces. Uh, you know, at the head of the province, there was usually a Roman official, a governor of sorts as we would call it. And that governor had a very, a relatively small uh, group of people that helped him run, run the system. But, you know, uh, a province could be made of, uh, of, of tens of cities and hundreds of villages and whatnot. And tens of thousands of people lived there. They didn't encounter the governor. Sometimes they haven't seen him even one time in their life. Uh, or maybe they'd see him once a year when he made his circles, you know, to sit. The governor sat at the highest court and his court moved from city to city and whatnot. So what you basically saw on a regular basis, you saw manifestation of Romanitas. For example, in statues, you know, statues of Roman emperors, statues of Roman gods eh, and goddesses. Those are some of the stuff that you'd see. And you would see your local bureaucracy. Those would be city councilors that every city had. These are the kind of people that represented authority. And those were met. So if you had problems with the taxes that the city collected and or you had problems with other laws and whatnot, you would not run to the Roman governor who sat at it wherever. You'd go to the officials that you meet in the bathhouses. And that we find a lot. We find this talk about stuff, but it's on the local level. That's why I call it small history. So you're seeing it from the viewpoint of the person on the street. And that's what's nice about it. So you're not getting the official tone or portrayal of society and imperialism. You get the the bolts and nuts of regular people and how they live their life in the Roman world. Do you mention religion in your book? Yes, of course. Uh, and the first thing to know about this is that when you talk about religion, the English word religion is actually 
a, a Latin word religio. It was very there, but religion functioned very differently in in ancient times than it is today, uh, for the simple fact that they didn't know what we would call secularism. You know, there weren't secular people in the ancient world. Everyone was religious, Uh, not religious like they are today, because it's not like it's before Christianity took over and kind of spread a different style of religion, which also led to secularism eventually, because people who rejected Christianity uh, and whatnot. So religion was a system of, a system of, uh, relating to the world and interacting with the world. Uh, you know, this is the pre-modern age. People, it was a very, it was a very hard world to live in and uh, people needed gods to help them go around. And they, they had all these, what we would call metaphysical beings. So it's not, it's a system that, that of powers that are not physical, that are not, you can't quantify them. You cannot see them. They're not tangible. They have tangible manifestations like in statues for Greeks and Romans. But, uh, so it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, uh, you know, you go, you walk in a Roman city and bathhouses are uh, the same from that point of view. And you, and you meet, uh, uh, statements or you meet articulations or manifestations of religion on every step of the way. Uh, You meet statues, you meet altars, you meet processions, you meet songs, you meet even simple activities that we today would think would be religious because these activities are trying to to solicit uh, the metaphysical powers to assist them and to protect them and to engage them and whatnot. So you'd find that every step of the way. There wasn't a separation of religion and state or religion and life. And there wasn't an alternative to what we would call religion. Everyone, it consumed your life. It made you, it gave you the tools to live. The, the templates to define the world, you know, good thing, bad thing, the gods are helping, are not helping, and so forth and so on. So it's very interesting because the Jews had a very unique religious system. They believed in this God called the God of Israel, and they weren't in many ways part of the general religious landscape of the Roman Mediterranean. But it's very interesting because they, so they didn't go, for example, to Roman temples. You would rarely see a view a Jew entering a Roman temple, but in bathhouses, everyone was there and, and they encountered Roman statues. And some of the greatest texts in, in rabbinic literature is when a Jew, and that's why I call the, the, the title of the book, A Jew in the Roman Bathhouse is based on, on, a, on a passage, on a, on a story in, in rabbinic literature of this very important rabbinic figure, a scholar by the name of Gamaliel, who comes to the bathhouse and he stands in front of a statue of the Roman goddess Venus, which since they're living in the East, they're speaking Greek, they're calling it Aphrodite. And he sees her there. And there's another bather there that engages him in questions. He's a Greek philosopher. And he recognizes him and says, Gamaliel, what are you doing in front of, of this goddess? Now you have to understand, and the text says, he's standing buck naked in front of it. And indeed, the chapter that deals with this in the book is called uh, The Naked Rabbi and the Beautiful Goddess. Aphrodite was always presented in statue as a beautiful, beautiful uh, a woman, also naked. And 
what what's going on in that conversation and through that story represents these dynamics of cultural interaction that I talk about. Because the the rabbi would probably not go to the temple to worship Aphrodite, but when he meets her in the bath, uh, he's he he he's forced in a way to to question or to articulate or to define his way of life. Is it appropriate or not? And if it, and he's there, it, it's probably appropriate in his eyes. So what are the ramifications and what what comes out of that is a is a fascinating cultural discussion uh, about religion. And you see religion in in Judaism, Greco-Roman religion is manifested in Aphrodite and and Judaism is represented by this scholar Gamaliel is is you have that but it's happening you see it's happening the two one is a statue but the two are both naked staring at each other and when you shed the clothes and you shed the the protections that kind of make us who we are and you and you're standing and you're confronted by that it's it's very raw it's very truthful the the kind of uh definitions that come out of that you mentioned aesthetics before but how did the architecture and design of these bathhouses contribute to the cultural experiences of different communities here in the empire uh, that's that's a very good question because uh, one of the things that I claim in the book is what I call architecture matters. A lot of times people view architecture as something very utilitarian that it's it's just it's just a science that is meant to to build things but it's not a science that is meant to communicate ideas. And I think in the bathhouse, you see it, you see that it's really not like that. That is the way the bathhouses were constructed was uh, an an implementation of their views about, you mentioned aesthetics, but also about what needs to transpire within the walls of the bathhouse. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Bathhouses they kind of acquired a certain structure, an architectural structure, that was copied in with some variations. Of course, not this old bathhouses were the same, were uh, as big as others and, and whatnot, but the layout is almost always the same. And it's a sort of a, it's a combination of a certain, certain rooms or certain, spaces within the bathhouse in which are all each one devoted and each one even has a name devoted to a certain activity within the bathhouse and by bringing all these rooms slash structures slash spaces together that's what forms the bathhouse it's not one room but it's sort of a combination it's almost like a formula there is a formula an architectural formula that you take that formula and you implement it, you give it to the builders, and they build a bathhouse. But the formula also represents ideas. It's not only about how to create the building, it's how to how to articulate the certain concepts and, and ideas that the bathhouse includes. And I'll I'll explain that in a, in a, right now. So what are the main features in the bathhouse? Well, it's a set of rooms and set of spaces. Bathhouses have, as I said already before, 
most bathhouses, once you enter the place right after a small assembly hall at the beginning, the first room that you meet is a changing room. And that's very important. The fact that they put the changing room right at first means that the expectation is that people shed their clothes off. They take their clothes off when they enter the bathhouse. The bathhouse is not a place to be with clothes. And indeed, we find many, many sources that document that. And some people that that left their clothes on or part of their clothes were being questioned or laughed at, or it seemed peculiar because it was a place you put the the changing room, which has a name, it's called the apoditorium. You put that right up front. And from there, you would think, all right, well, I take my clothes off, I jump into the water. That's not true. Uh, the second space is, is an open space. It's called a palestra. And it's an open courtyard that usually uh, most of the bathhouse had had a floor made of stones or mosaics. The palestra had sand in it because it was, it was an outdoor, a relatively large outdoor space for physical activities, which tells you that the, the uh, people spend a lot of time in the bathhouse. And one of the first things that they wanted to do is develop a sweat. They would go and work out at the palestra. There, there were all sorts of games. They liked the Romans love to wrestle. You know, we're talking about, we're not talking professional wrestling. We're just talking as, as a sports, as an activity. And that's why the floor there was made out of sand. So they developed a sweat. They got dirty with the sand and whatnot. And then they started going into a series of rooms with different temperatures of the water. There's the cold room, the frigidarium. There's a, a room that the water becomes a, a little hot. And there's the, the very hot room. It's called the caldarium. These are Latin words that mean caldarium, frigidarium. You hear the, the word refrigerator. That's the word cold. It's the world, it's a it's a room that serves cold water. And you go, there's a you don't you don't bathe in one type of water. There's a cycle. It's a process. It's almost like a procession. It's almost like a ritual that you go from one type of water to another. Then there's rooms on the side also for sauna. There are rooms to apply olive oil on yourself, which was sort of their uh, skin skin treatment that they did. Uh, there are also places to buy food. There, there are other, uh, other places. Now, not every bathhouse had all of these rooms, but the cluster, the nucleus of the bathhouse in most places looks the same. And this tells you it's almost like a shared language. You see, if they build bathhouses in in pretty much the same way throughout the Roman Mediterranean, uh, this is a, a world in which 50 million lived in and they went into that room. It's sort of like a shared experience. They're all tied in this way of life. That's why bathhouses are the architecture of bathhouses, as you asked, is a representation of Romanitas, of the Roman way of life. And that's what's so nice about it. The, the architecture here is sort of like a magnet that brings you, sucks you into the Roman way of life. And if I'm able to enter that system with a Jew and look at it through the eyes of the Jew, through the words and the ideas and the stories that these Jews left for us in rabbinic literature, I'm able to trace down and to follow how they interacted with Romanitas. So Judaism, Judaios, as they called it, and Romanitas through the bathhouse, or Balneon, as, as it usually is called in, in Roman times, from the from the verb to, to bathe, of course, Balneon, a place where you bathe.
Can you elaborate more on the chronology that you used um, when it relates to bathhouses? So let's think about the daily life and routines, but also the larger cultural shifts that are happening throughout the empire's history and these bathhouses. Sure. So um, the chronology here is based on, on two features. First, the evolution of bathhouses. And it's not like there were bathhouses all the time. Now, uh, it's important to understand people bathed themselves and even in hot water before the Romans. Before Roman bathhouses, we find, say, in Greek culture, that Greek way of life that kind of came before the Romans took power over the Roman Mediterranean, there were places that were used for bathing, but it was a very different kind of bathing. It wasn't, at first it wasn't for everyone and they didn't have a way to, to bring these large quantities of water and to heat them on, on a massive scale and whatnot. So it's a different way. When we're talking about the bathhouse, we're talking about that specific Roman institution and that institution evolved, uh, in, it's actually really hard to pinpoint where was the first bathhouse and who invented it and whatnot. Scholars disagree about that forever. It really doesn't matter because uh, it developed around what we would call the first century. Actually, the earliest public big bathhouses in the city of Rome happened in the first century, what we call before the common era. So if the common era begins at so-called zero and you know common before zero and after zero, in the first century before the common era, that's the end days of the Republic, of the Roman Republic. Figures like Julius Caesar and his uh, adopted son, Augustus, you, you, everyone knows about those people. So Augustus, who was actually the first Roman emperor, his best friend was a dude by the name of Agrippa. And Agrippa uh, he's the uh, he's documented as as building one of the first imperial bathhouses. These were the great bathhouses in the city of Rome. There were bathhouses, public bathhouses already before that in the first century, but from there, Roman bathhouses start spreading spreading throughout the Mediterranean. This happens in the first hundred years of the Common Era. They start spreading throughout the Roman Mediterranean, and in the second century, the, the century that begins around the year 100. So we're talking about emperors uh, like uh, Trajan and Hadrian. Bathhouses start spreading out throughout the Roman world altogether. So that's where the, the period begins. Now, bathing in the Roman style will continue deep into the Middle Ages. And you know, once the Arabs, for example, conquered some of, of the Roman world in the East. They adopted Roman bathhouses and they developed it as, as, an, as a, an Arabic bathhouse, what we would call today the hammam, that people can still see if they go to the Middle East or to Turkey and whatnot. It all is influenced by these Roman bathing facilities just because it was so great to immerse yourself in, in hot water. So it can go all the way there. So the Roman bath bathhouses cover the the first 1,000 years of the Common Era. But for my study, I limited since I want to talk about the Jews. So I'm limited by my sources. And the great sources about the Jews are these rabbinic sources. Without that, I have no access to the Jews. Yeah, there is a source here and there, but they don't speak about bathhouses too much. And some of them even were written before bathhouses became so popular. So there's this Jewish philosopher that lived in Alexandria called Philo. So he never mentions bathhouses because Roman bathhouses were not there in Alexandria when he, uh, during his time, or were just coming in. and Or you think about it, the Jewish historian Josephus mentions bathhouses, but not that much. 
rabbinic literature that was written, started getting produced around the year 200 and goes all the way up to the year 500, 550. So these 300 years are the core of this book. And the reason that they're the core is because there I have a lot of information. There are hundreds of references, stories, and and and, uh, and statements, and, and concepts, and all sorts of things about bathhouses in rabbinic literature. So in those 300 years, I can, through rabbinic literature, 300 years from around 200 to 500, more or less, that's where most of the story of the book takes place because I can I know a lot about Jews during that period of time. And of course, I have all the archaeology and all the Greco-Roman literature as well. That's where I can do my interdisciplinary study of that. So I would say the book is about uh, Judaism and Roman culture and their interaction mostly around 200 to 500. I do go and look at the 100 years or so, 150 years before that, and I go a little bit after, but the central of the focus, the chronological focus, is on those 300 years. And for academic researchers who are looking at other multicultural groups, let's say it could even be gender um, or something ethnic, how do you think your study could help them in their um, pursuits? Well, it could in the sense that uh, topics that are discussed in the book are really broken down to what I call their elements. You know, so take, for example, gender. Gender is a central component of the discussion here because women went to the bathhouse. Uh, they bathed with men. And most of them were also exposed. So the questions regarding gender or regarding what does it mean to be a woman? What are the uh, uh, relationships between men and women? You know, they, they all, they're all very bare. And that's why I said the book was sometimes even a little rough in that, in that, you know, I have a full chapter dealing with nudity and sex in the bathhouse. And a lot of that a lot of that happened, but the book is not, in that sense, is not focused on that, but uses these life experiences in order to study, again, the interaction between Jews and the Roman world. However, scholars from other fields, say scholars who are interested in 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 gender, or uh, they're scholars of, of women's studies, for example, who are pursuing just understanding how the concept of uh, of a female, what did it mean to be a woman in the Roman world? In many ways, even people want to understand what it means to be a woman in the Middle Ages, or what does it mean uh, to be a woman today? Or even people that are uh, a, a men who who are a, having different forms of expression of their sexuality. For example, one of the things that happened in bathhouses was uh, homosexual relationships and whatnot. So all these things are discussed in the book and the book has an index. And I've already heard that people who are studying completely separate topics related to the ancient world, but also the relationship between the ancient world and, and more recent times have found the discussions in the book useful, not in the sense that they're in, I take the discussions toward the question of the book, which is culture interaction between Jew, Judaism and, and the Roman way of life. But through that, you have, through the bathhouse, you actually have access to a lot of topics 
that are central to the study of culture, such as gender, such as aesthetic. What does it mean to be beautiful? What is beautiful? What determines beauty? You know, in the bathhouse, these are very important elements because you're bare. Now, now you, you don't have all the covers that kind of protect you. Is that beautiful or not? What are the set of principles that develop aesthetics or religion or gender? Or social hierarchy? How is social hierarchy defined? What makes it? What are the powers that establish power in a society? What happens when power loses its marks or its articulations? All these things are in, in the book as well. So I think in that sense, scholars from other fields would have uh, the ability to benefit from some some of the sources that I bring and I translate. All the sources are in English there. So even if you're not uh, proficient in, in Greek or Latin or Hebrew or Aramaic, everything I bring, I translate into English and it could be used for different studies of different topics. Were there any limitations or challenges for you as you completed your project? Uh, there were a lot of limitations for, of course, a project is, is never finished. You know, uh, the end of one project is the beginning of, of another project. Uh, for me, one of the, uh, one of the limitations I took upon myself was I knew I wanted to write a book about this and I wanted the book to be readable. I didn't want the book to address only scholars. One of, one of my major goals, because I thought, hey, here's an opportunity to get to the heart of this very important cultural moment, the meeting of, of Judaism and, and, and Roman culture. I wanted to write it in a language that would bring a lot of people into it. I didn't want it to be cataloged as a book in an academic library. I want it to be in a public library. And I wanted anyone who's interested in nonfiction, has nonfiction interest, either in, in if, say, these are uh, people who are attracted to the Rowan world, or they're just attracted to understanding culture and would, would be able to read and be able to enjoy the book. So that's one of the first limitations. It's the limitation of presentation. I presented the material as a story. It's a story, it's an invitation to come with me to the bathhouses. And I, I, my challenge was always to break down, at times rather complex conceptions and whatnot into a language and into a presentation that would be, that would be uh, inviting and would be appealing to everyone. There's humor in the book, you know, there is... Uh, uh, there are no there are no footnotes. There are footnotes, but we allocated the footnotes all the way to the back. You can read the book without reading any academic jargon or footnotes or bibliography. Just read the story, a story of an institution that existed in ancient times and we don't have it today, and a story of this group of people, the largest minority in the Roman world, the Jews, and how they engaged that institution with its various with its various aspects, with its various uh, elements that that create that institution. So the book starts with a description of of the bathhouse itself, and there is some reproductions that I created with some artists and and whatnot. There's a diagram at the beginning of the book that really just allows you to feel it's a it's a it's an entire recreation of a typical bath, and and so forth, and and and. So that that's that's one of the major limitations I had. The limitation of it's not a limitation, but it's a principle. Tell the story in a way that everyone can understand it. 
The second limitation was a limitation of length. I couldn't tell the entire story because it would take a series of books. There was too much material. So I had to pick and choose which aspects of the bathhouse am I going to talk about in the book and which I will leave out and leave for other people to work on or for me to write about in the future or whatnot. And I left some aspects, but the book doesn't cover all aspects of the bathhouse. I took those that seemed to me most important, most interesting uh, to the topic, and some I've left out. What about preserving cultural identity? Historical preservation likes material culture. So... um, what remnants of these bathhouses exist today, whether in culture or physically? Oh, there's uh, every city you go to that was part of the Roman world, you would find a full range of remnants of these bathhouses. Bathhouses are very, very easy to identify. They're ancient remnants because they had a very unique type of elements that were incorporated into it. For example, the heating system of the bathhouse. So the way the Romans heated the bath was by raising the floors up and sending hot water underneath the floors. Uh, So they heated the water in a certain place uh, uh, under fire, and then uh, pipes would lead the water into these pools. But you know, water even when it's burning hot, it gets cooled off very, very fast. Anyone who took a, uh, went and, and went into a bath today, you know, a modern bath, you know that. Say you went to your jacuzzi, put a hot water, they kind of tends to cool off. So the system of heating, sending heat underneath the floors was meant to keep the water hot for a long period of time. That system is called, uh, they use the Greek term, hypocaust, which means, which is a Greek word that means to heat from underneath. And uh, those, so you see these, these floors and underneath there is like these, these small, very small columns that are meant to raise the floor. And that's where the void that was created, once you raise the floor a little bit uh, into that void, they'd send the hot water. And then you see those, uh, it's very easy because it's very close to the ground Anyone, everyone who studies archaeology will tell you the remnants that are found, usually buildings are broken down and walls and roofs, they, they all crumble over years, but everything around the floor stays. That's why mosaic floors have, have, have remained and survived from ancient times. And that's why bathhouses and their heating systems are there. So it's very easy to identify them. And then uh, if you start from the city of Rome and then you go either west toward what they called Gallia, which is today's France, or you cross the British Channel to what they called Britannia, which is today's England, uh, you find bathhouses everywhere in cities like London or, you know, in, in almost every place you find numerous, numerous bathhouses. If you go east or if you go south to what is today North Africa, which was part of the Roman Empire, in the great in any archaeological excavations in in Libya or or in Egypt or in in all these areas in on the north shores of Africa, you find you find bathhouses 
everywhere. And of course, the region that interests me the most are the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, because a lot of the Jews live there, especially in the areas that are today would be considered, say, modern Israel slash Palestine. Uh, in, in those places, you find you find bathhouses everywhere. So there were great Roman cities like the port city that King Herod built called Caesarea. You go to the today; it's an archaeological park. You go there, you see at the center, you find a couple of bathhouses, or a city like Scythopolis, which is today a city called Bechan. You know, all these cities you find you find Roman cities had bathhouses, and if there were bathhouses, chances are the archaeologists found at least the remnants of of the floor and they're able that way to kind of uh, recreate the layout and and some of that. And then many other aspects of the bathhouse were found, the palestra, the various rooms, the changing rooms and whatnot uh, were found. So you can see them anywhere you go throughout, throughout what was the Roman Mediterranean, which today are the various countries around, around the Mediterranean, Southern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, the, the, the western parts of the Middle East, the east, which are the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. Debates. Are there ongoing debates or controversies among scholars in some of the things that you have written about? For sure. Uh, the entire book in many ways is, you can read the book in many ways, but one of the ways to read it is me debating certain issues with previous scholars. Uh, and the book is many ways a counter statement towards the way scholars understood Judaism in its relationship to Roman culture and also the way they understood Jews and bathhouses. So the common, there was a common view among scholars going all the way back to the 19th century, scholars who studied ancient Judaism, who believed that Jews not only disliked bathhouses and saw the bathhouse as sort of an antithesis to their way of life, but they also refrained from attending bathhouses, let alone building bathhouses. And there are views of, of scholars, and I bring those, and, and I discuss it with them, and I debate them, and I, and I present an alternative view. But not only about that, you know, the fact that if, if you think of, uh, say you were Jewish and you're listening to this, uh, this podcast, and you have to imagine, say, you're a rabbi, one, a great rabbi today, going to a nude, a beach of nudists. It would be inconceivable for you. And that's why many scholars, since they applied their, the way they view Judaism today and the way they envision rabbis today to the ancient world, they say, well, the ancient rabbis were somewhat like our rabbis, you know, with beards and whatever, and black clothes, you know, and hats and, and whatnot. And even if they didn't have those features, at least the, the, the mindset was the same mindset. They couldn't view rabbis coming to a place suffused with nudity and with sexuality and what not. So a lot of the views of modern scholars were uh, viewing Jews as not part of the bathhouse culture. So the book is constantly in, a, in debate and in disagreement with those scholars, uh, proving uh, some of them wrong, but also presenting an alternative of how, how to rethink about the nature of Judaism, what is a rabbi, and so forth. So in that sense, it's uh, some people describe the book as provocative in the sense that it kind of presents a, a 
thesis that doesn't work, doesn't go, doesn't follow in the footsteps of many of the traditional views among scholars about what, what it meant to be a Jew, what it meant to be a rabbi, and what was the nature of the interaction of Judaism in general with, with Greco-Roman culture. Looking beyond the specific focus of your book, how do you envision future research expanding on the topic of cultural interaction in the ancient Mediterranean? What gaps do you see in current scholarship that will affect the future? Well, I think one of the major challenges of people who study the Roman Mediterranean in general is the question of the sources and the avail availability of the sources. Uh, you see, we are scholars are prisoners of their sources. We are limited. We can't go beyond what our sources offer. And that presents a, a major challenge and problem to scholarship, uh, one of which my, my book deals with, namely that a lot of the material that we have, the written material in particular, represents a very limited stratum of society. Most of Greco-Roman sources, for example, were written by the upper echelons of society, by writers and authors. You know, not everyone knew how to, if you became an author, you're already associated with, with the really upper ranks of, of the Roman world. Some were scribes or historians or uh, senators or emperors themselves or philosophers and, and whatnot. It is very rare that we have what I call literature of the periphery. Think about it. The Roman world was a multicultural and multi-ethnic world. What do we know about all the minorities that lived in the Roman world from their point of view? Not what the Romans wrote about them. You know, we, let's talk about Syrians and Egyptians and Arabs and Phoenicians and uh, whatever groups lived in. I'm focusing on the Roman East for now, but it could be the same thing on the on the Roman West. What do we know about the uh, the Celts or the Germans and whatnot? So yeah, we know about the Germans, but we know what Julius Caesar wrote about them or what Tacitus wrote about them. So a lot of the views of one of the challenges for future generations would be to recreate the multi-layered uh, society and culture of, of the ancient world. And we, uh, in the past century or so, we're pretty much limited to either looking at emperors and upper ranks or looking at others, but through the lenses, that is through the writings of those who wrote about them, which were those upper ranks. Now, my book is unique in that sense is that I study the Roman world but with rabbinic literature, I, I am able to recreate the voices of a group that lived really very much on the outskirts of the Roman world. You know, they live in this eastern province of Judea, far away from Rome, far away from the center. Most of them never been in Rome or, or, or even close to it. But we have a very rich articulation in this literature of who they are, what they are, and what they're doing, and so forth. It's a huge opportunity that rarely happens that you have a reservoir, you have a line of communication with people on the periphery of the Roman world. And I think, I would hope, 
I, I call for it in the book that more topics and more people who are studying the Roman world would use rabbinic literature. You know, rabbinic literature is a reservoir. This is a huge corpus. There are some 40 books. We're talking about thousands and thousands of folio pages that discuss almost every aspect of life. I focused only on bathhouses, but uh, I, there is a call in this book uh, or or first a, a, it's a sample of how rich this literature is and how useful it could be to study Roman life, mainly because it allows, it, it provides you access to voices that are usually not heard in the traditional sources that study the Roman world. The problem for, for scholars, for colleagues of mine who study the Roman world is, is a language barrier. They have to train themselves in in rabbinics, but I think it's called for. I think that every scholar who uh, who's interested in the Roman world or graduate student who are looking, you know, you could repeat what people have said. Mostly the, the, the story of the traditional sources for the most part has been exhausted. We've been studying it now for 200 years, almost, almost all the way back to the Renaissance. It's the same corpus of sources, classical sources. And here I'm showing, I'm bringing up a potential of a different group of sources. And I'm showing people, hey, look, it's very rich. It's, it's very, there's a lot of potential in terms of doing it. And I would like to see rabbinic literature incorporated into the curriculum of, of, people of students who are training and students who are in who are interested even just people on the street who are uh, people in society who are interested in ancient times pay attention to rabbinic literature is one of the things that the book is saying and I, and I hope that would have a an impact on the future because you see once you see the potential it may kind of trigger you to say hmm that's very interesting so I'm studying something entirely different I'm studying economics of, of Roman times I'm studying uh, uh, the army, the Roman army, you know how many references are there to the Roman army in rabbinic literature? You can't imagine. And But they're never used. There hasn't been a book about the Roman army, you know, through the lenses of, of, of the rabbis. And again, bring archaeology, bring Greco-Roman literature, but add rabbinic literature to the foil. Any seminars or appearances in the works? Uh, there, there are quite a quite a few. I mean, the book has been uh, out uh, for for a while. I, I, there, there already some some stuff that has been put online. Uh, I had an interesting uh, video conversation here. It's just audio, but if you want to see me in live, there's one on. Uh, you can see some of that on my on my YouTube channel. If you just look on YouTube under my name, you can you can see some of those presentations. There are going to be others. I'm going to be in in the summer. I've, I've attended last summer uh, some presentations in England that I've done. This uh, coming summer, I'm going to be heading uh, to Europe. There were some plans in the Middle East as well, but the, the area is now unfortunately uh, consumed in war one more time. So it's not not the best, but uh, we'll be there and. Uh, People who are around the, the University of Michigan, which is where I am, uh, can, uh, of course, access more of that. Uh, I like also the format of video. So if you do go to my YouTube channel, you'll see I've uh, produced some uh, 
one one short film on matters really very closely related to what we're doing here, focusing more on statues. It's a it's a movie called Paul in Athens, which is free on my YouTube a- channel. Uh, there's some other video clips that I shot around my, the Mediterranean. So people like that form of expression through v- the visual expression through watching and seeing. That's that's a good place to go as well. Do you have final thoughts for our New Books Network audience? Uh, if I have final thoughts, well, first, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, and uh, I obviously, people who still read, read books, they enjoy the adventure that books provide. And uh, I enjoy that, too. And that's why I, I devote my professional life to, to explore and to uh, share my adventures. My adventures in the Roman world are in in that book. So I would just say, hey, if if that interests you, I invite you to join my adventure in in the bathhouse and come come dip your feet in the water with me, as one would say. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Yaron Eliav and Princeton University Press for discussing his new book, A Jew in the Roman Bathhouse, Cultural Interaction in the Ancient Mediterranean, out of Princeton University Press. Subscribe to get more episodes from the New Books Network. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.